Welcome to Phone Messages, Episode 59, Vacuum Maintenance. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week's message comes from an appliance service center and is most likely a wrong number. Since I am not able to attain the caller's permission to play the message, I have distorted her voice and name. In addition, even though the phone number she leaves is no longer attached to a place of business, I have changed that as well. The message comes from fall of 1988 or winter of 1989 and is 14 seconds long. Let's listen. This is Clear Service Center. 9279836. My name is Marie. It's in regards to the maintenance agreement insurance on your vacuum cleaner. I'm here till 8.30. Thank you. One reason I am fairly certain this is a wrong number is because my studio apartment in Hyde Park at the time had hardwood floors. Although parts of my childhood home in Minnesota had carpeting, Moving to Chicago for college made me appreciate the beauty of wood floors. The problem with carpet is that no matter how good your vacuum cleaner is, there will always be a layer of dust and grime buried inside. Vacuums, of course, are not just for carpets. In the late 19th century, they first emerged as pneumatic devices that blew dust from drapes and upholstery. In the early 20th century, machines with the capacity for suction were introduced, but were primarily for the wealthy since most people did not yet have electricity. A manual carpet sweeper, patented by Melville Bissell in 1876, had rotating brushes that captured dirt as they rolled across the floor. The Hoover Vacuum, first released in 1908, basically added suction to a rotating sweeper. As more homes acquired electricity in the 1920s, women's magazines praised the vacuum cleaner as one of many modern devices that would eliminate a homemaker's drudgery. But as historian Ruth Schwartz Cohen points out in her book, more work for mother, new technologies like the vacuum cleaner did not necessarily lift the burden for women. Before vacuums, carpet cleaning was a seasonal activity where rugs were lifted outside and beaten with brooms to remove dust. This required mom, dad, and children alike to participate in the work. Vacuums made carpet cleaning a weekly or even daily activity done by mom alone. Beyond the fact that I did not own a vacuum cleaner, another oddity of this phone message comes simply from the idea of an appliance repair shop. Today, if a vacuum cleaner breaks, many people simply buy a new one since the cost of repair might be nearly as much as a new machine. Appliance repair shops are also rare these days. 
The most recent data I could find on the repair shop's decline comes from a 2001 story in the Colorado Springs Gazette. It noted a drop in the number of shops across the U.S. from 52,000 in 1972 to 17,000 in 2001. The trend toward replacing rather than repairing broken appliances, of course, has devastating effects for the environment and can be traced to the rise of mass consumer society. As Susan Strasser points out in her book, Waste and Want, before the 20th century, there was little need for garbage dumps because almost all so-called trash, whether food, clothing, or equipment, was reused or repurposed in some way. Fortunately, in recent years, new resources have revitalized appliance repair. First, in part thanks to YouTube, one can now easily find instructions on how to repair almost any broken device imaginable. Second, in 2009, a Dutch environmentalist came up with the idea of repair cafes where volunteers with technical skills regularly set up a free shop to fix household goods of all kinds. According to the Repair Cafe Foundation, worldwide there are now 2,000 communities that host repair cafes. Okay, that's it for this week. If you would like to participate in this podcast or have comments, please contact me through my website, pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.